Good afternoon, good people of Wolverhampton. Um, who is this? Normally, you'll be expecting to hear the great Dr. Dark and his usual Wednesday afternoon show. But no, today I'm a guest presenter and my name is Liz Carr. Um, you may have heard of me. I was Paul's interviewee last week, yes. And I do the Ouch podcast on BBC. That's bbc.co.uk uh, forward slash Ouch or the BBC site. So I'm here. Why? Because we're going to swap things around this week and I'm actually going to be interviewing Dr. Dark. I know. So all those questions that you've had, maybe or none at all, I'm going to be asking them of Paul. So that's what we've got coming up in the next two hours. So uh, if you do have some questions and you'd like me to ask them, then email in. Don't know what the email... Oh, yeah, I can see it here on the page. Bear with me. It's dark at wcrfm.com. Email us this afternoon, and if we get the questions in time, we'll be reading them out. So, uh, Paul, how are you doing over there? I'm not doing too bad today, Liz. You all right? I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Are you? I'm looking forward to it. Are you Very a little much worried so. at all? Uh, I'm always worried. Of course. That's the nature of being disabled, yeah. isn't it? The, the number one question, I think, that, that I'm sure... All of your listeners have, and all and, of them, and that I have, mm. obviously, is what is wrong with you, Paul? <laughs> well, according to my doctor, <laughs> I have spina bifida and hydrocephalus. Really, is uh, that why you've got such a big head? It, it, well, or is I, that just the ego? I know hydrocephalus. We usually call them big heads, but yeah. I, I don't actually have that big head. But I do have a valve in my head that drains the. The blood, no, the, the cerebral fluid away from my brain. That's why hydrocephalus is. And it drains it into my heart. A little, bit of, a little bit of brain fluid going through my heart. And that's, I think, what makes me so special. Oh, and you are. <laughs> and spina bifida, it just means I'm paralysed from the middle of my back down. Wow. Mm. I'm, I'm amazed you answered that in such detail. Well, thank you. Uh, the reason for that was number one question. Is I, I, I do think that as disabled people, we get asked it all the time. I don't know about you. Do you, mm. do you find is that one of the questions you get asked? Or uh, not really? Because I think I scare far too many people to bit to make them ask that. So I, I, it's funny. I rarely get asked what's wrong. Really? With me. Absolutely. What do, what do you then? What is the questions that you get asked? Uh, do you think because you're a disabled person? Uh, well, it's not. I don't get asked questions. I get statements made at me. I think the most common is uh, something like, uh, I would pay for an operation to have you fixed if only it was possible. Oh, uh, was that your wife's? <laughs> no, no, it was me in laws. No, no, it wasn't. Did <laughs> 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 oh. No, I get that. And the other one uh, is usually, you know, I'd do anything for you if I could. But then when I say I want some money, they say, well, anything but, but not that. that. Exactly. So, but I usually prefer cash. But I tend not to get asked those questions. I think I've occasionally had people pat me on the head and say, you know, the Lord forgives your father for his sins, which is obviously why you are like you are. Wow. That's, that's always quite a... Mm-hmm. Quite it takes you back, doesn't it? Don't you think it shocks you when it does happen? Well, it's a conversation killer, I always think. <laughs> <laughs> and have you been given much money over the years? Uh, well, when I was younger, I used to get money. When you were cute? Yes, yes. When I was less fat, uh-huh. people used to give me that's money. That's what I meant. But I've not been given money for quite a while. Although I was in France mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, and I was, I was outside a church, because obviously uh, my wife and son went in to view it because it had big steps. And I sat outside, and I have a funny way with my hands. My hands are kind of cupped all the time mm-hmm. as part of my impairment. And uh, and obviously, people thought I was a beggar. <laughs> uh, and I, so, so I had to sit on my hands and sort of look, sit up straight and pretend I wasn't a beggar mm-hmm. because people were mistaking me for a beggar. Because mm-hmm. in France, every church has its own beggar. 
and they it, thought you were and they thought I was it it could have been the uh, the striped top that you currently have on they thought you were the local <laughs> local swag man yeah that's right it looks <laughs> like that that's what you no mean. I think I had my traditional thermal wear on <laughs> even though it was 40 degrees in the shade Paul, Paul I've known you for what probably about 8, 9 years I'd say 20 or 30 but... it feels that way doesn't it but <laughs> it I think does. I, I was barely born then Paul. exactly yeah. <laughs> um, and, in fact uh, I'd hate to tell you this but I'm your father <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. What a revelation. You hear it first on WCR. FM. <laughs> FM. Don't forget that bit. Yes. Wow. Well, Dad, this could be more like therapy for both absolutely, of us. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> what was the question going to be? Well, the question was going to be, it was less of a question at this point, right? And mm. more of, so I did a bit of research mm-hmm. on you. Oh, no. Did you? It's a bit of a this is your life moment. I there. thought the only person who Googled me on Google was me. <laughs> now it's me as well. <laughs> you do come up quite a lot, don't I you? Do. I, I do. Was about, on the first page that had 10 listings, you were all but one of them. Mm. It was you. So I was very, But I found this. This is, is from your website, which is uh, dark.info. That's right. www.dark.info. Dark with an E on the end. Okay. And it is not Drake. No, not Drake, not Drake. Although there is a passing resemblance to Charlie Drake now and again. <laughs> For listeners old enough to know who he is. Well, people will understand the reference to the weight and talent <laughs> before you came on now. Um, apparently, anyway, this is... Because I was thinking, I don't really know who you are or what you are, Paul. <laughs> Even though you've only known me for nine years. That's the one, 20, remember that. Um, so you're an internationally respected academic, writer and cultural critic who's written and creative extensively around the issue of identity and culture. I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm pleased to know that you can actually read. That's <laughs> I know, me too. You know, because I know that. Words of more than three <laughs> syllables. <laughs> so what's the question about that, that glorious description of me? Do you think that's an accurate description of I, yourself? I, I think it probably underestimates my significance <laughs> of position in society. So does that answer your question? So how would you describe yourself then, uh, these days? I think these days probably as... Raconteur, wit, legend of the handicap movement. Really? <laughs> that kind of thing, yeah. That's why uh, you're uh, working for WCR. <laughs> and you work for the BBC. I, I think I've got the better position there. <laughs> I think you have. Not that, we're, not that we're getting competitive at all here. Of course not. <laughs> uh, no, I think that that's I do different things all over the place. I think the point is I don't have a proper job nine to five. I do a lot of different creative writing performing i'm I'm writing a play for someone at the moment some talentless woman i'm really going to try drag careful. through the <laughs> we may be talking about that later on so <laughs> let's talk about that painful experience later <laughs> I think. but uh one of the things you know as i was looking through everything then and, and you know and the outside center website uh, that's outside dash center um dot com yeah i was thinking and dot info Yes, okay. It's important. Don't impose the Wolverhampton Festival one. Paul, is it that you're uh, a jack of all trades, but master of none? <laughs> oh, that's cruel, that's cruel. <laughs> uh, no, I'd like to think I'm master of all of them. Really? <laughs> I think my specialism is in disability theory. That's what I'm really a bit of a master at. And, and cultural analysis of the position of disabled people in society and the role in which normality plays in the construction and oppression of otherness, i.e. disabled people. That, that's my true master. That's your thing. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, because at the bottom of that definition and comedy. Of, of what you do, <laughs> it said you were also the originator of normality theory. That's right. 
And, and so, in a way that we can all understand, can you try and explain well, that Well, it was normality... Th- it was was it normality drama theory? I think is what it's actually officially supposed to be called. Okay, and that is the theory that all drama, especially narrative drama like films, but equally non-narrative drama like documentaries, the whole principle and point of it is not the exploration of disability indifference, but it's about constructing the idea of normality and what it is to be normal for those observing it, including disabled people, to construct their own kind of a imposed idea of what what it is to be normal is that clear enough for you so does normal exist well and that that's the flip side is normality doesn't exist and so but it enables people to construct it not in what it is but in what it isn't so you watch a film about disability my left foot example and you know you're normal because you're not like the character in the film but the character in the film enables you to say, but I am this, this and this, because I'm not that, that, that. Mm. There you go. Uh, six years of university took me to do that. <laughs> so, is, so there's no such thing as normality? There is no such thing as normality. It's an illusion. So and, what are we all delusion. aspiring to? What are most, the majority of the population disabled or not? What is it? Because it seems to me that a lot of people are aspiring to be normal or like... They're aspiring to a, an illusion and a delusion, yes. And that's why they're always doomed to failure and misery and unhappiness. Because they can never be something that's an ideal that doesn't exist. And you should just get on with your life being what you are. In our case, severely handicapped. <laughs> <laughs> well, your case, anyway. <laughs> not, not you. You're totally superior to that. I know, I know, I know. Well, thank you. If, um, I'm sure people will totally understand what you're talking about there. <laughs> well, I'd like to think so. I think, But if you wanted to read it, it is online. Yes. The main uh, piece that defines that is at dark.info, as are most of my writings, and they can all be found there. And, and there's a detailed exploration of it there. And I think, I mean, joking apart, which we're going to do for the next two hours, because um, I do know Paul, I can get away with saying these things to him. Absolutely. He was very rude to me last week. <laughs> so, you know, that's how we treat you. That's what we call friendship. Um, other people call it marriage. Oh, different types of relationship, but we call it friendship. Um, but you are actually one of the UK's and, yes, internationally, the most respected commentator on normality theory or normality drama, drama theory, theory. yes. Because it's mainly about the, the notion of... In films, you get genres, mm-hmm. like you get the Western, and, and you get, and then there's this other genre that's commonly called, but without any kind of clear def- definition, which is usually called... Uh, disease of the week kind of films that you get on channel five three o'clock in the afternoon it's the disease of the week but if you throw in those kind of films plus all those big films like my left foot all the other films about disability in my view they can constitute their own genre and that's what the normality drama theory was about is about defining that as a genre with very specific key aims and objectives and that is about defining normality for people who think and believe in normality even though it doesn't exist. Now, is there any coincidence then <coughs> that I happen to know that you do not have a television anymore? <laughs> <laughs> so for a man that analyzes in a way mm. contemporary culture and, and a lot of that will be media will be television, film or whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why have you chosen not to have a television? Partly because of the lies that contemporary television tells itself that it is improving the diversity and range of its representation, particularly of disabled people. But it's equally true of gay and and lesbians, of course, and uh, also people from ethnic minorities. And they're all trapped 
within this notion of normality. And the reason for getting rid of the television is really the recognition and the acknowledgement to myself that it uh, it's never really going to get that much better or change at all. You really, you really don't believe there's any hope for the future of television? No. I think what you're getting is a sanitising, so that images are now, in a way, still part of the normality drama, but they're, they're actually, what they're doing to disabled people and black people and gay people is they're making them normal, which is, is another way of denying their difference. Can you... OK, because I'm, I'm aware that we understand this stuff. We've mm-hmm. talked about it before. But if you're listening out there, this, this is all possibly all new stuff. So mm-hmm. can you give an example of when you were watching TV? What would be a good example of that? When I was watching television. Uh, of showing <sighs> us as normal. What? Showing us as normal. Well, I think if you take, for example, there was a sitcom on the television recently called I'm With Stupid. Okay. Or yeah. there was a children's thing called Desperado. And basically it was... You, my point is really you could have had those those programs with normal people, i.e. non-disabled people or what society thinks of as normal, and it really wouldn't have been that different. So it wasn't actually exploring them being disabled or impaired or physically abject or different at all. It wasn't exploring normality. It was just about disabled people as normal people. And as we all know, we're not normal. Because even if, if you're arguing that normal doesn't exist, so even normal people are normal, and they're not. And we've met most of them to realise they're not. And they're living under the biggest delusions of all, most normal people. So it's that notion that you would create a programme that really it wouldn't matter if you had a non-disabled person in there or a disabled person in there. So you're saying, you know, that these programmes aren't showing us as impaired people the reality, etc., of our, of our lives, fine... But then do you want programmes on TV that show us, you know, in the, the gritty reality of what it's like to be a disabled person? And, and aren't there, couldn't you argue that there are programmes like that, Paul, uh, that, that love to actually go on a lot about our impairments and, and our conditions? Uh, well, I'd say I want all types of programmes. That's the point. You, you have in the media at the moment this notion of mainstreaming, and that's putting disabled people in, in mainstream programmes. Uh, so you get them popping up in quiz shows. So they're being impaired or, or disabled makes no difference. And I've got nothing against that if it's, if it's in a, a range of types of programmes that has the gritty realism, that has disabled people celebrating their difference. If you're, all you're getting is that normalised view, that is the worst abject negation of ourselves that you can ever get. And that's what we're moving to. And the people responsible for those kind of decisions should be imprisoned, in my view. Because they're, they're, hold back on this, Paul. They are committing a crime against society. And this is why I celebrate WCRFM for giving us this free space of two hours to mm-hmm. talk disability however we wish to. That, that's unique in the UK. You were asked before this program began, mm. uh, which program would you say is the, you know, is your favourite program? And and if people weren't listening before three o'clock, which program did you say and why? I said Ironside because it it it, it was a very influential program on me as a child, in that it both gave me hope and it reinforced my delusions that I think you need as a child that I could grow up to be normal because I'm like anybody else I'm as trapped in it as, as everybody particularly when I was younger and Ironside gave me that but equally it is just surreal it is one of the most surreal programs ever to have been made why surreal for example there's a murder on the fifth floor of a tenement block 
Ironside is there in a flash. <laughs> That's surreal. And yet there was no teleporting or transporting in there at all. It, it would have been wonderful to have had uh, Ironside appear in Star Trek because it was a bit like that, really. <laughs> was he? A, I'm not sure I like this phrase, but um, was he a role model for you? Paul? Was he a role model for me? Only in the eating sense, because <laughs> myself... You do look remarkably similar. <laughs> Me and Raymond Burr were big chaps. <laughs> uh, I suppose he was, really, because it, it was just fantastic to see him on the television. And, and I think... And again, that's the problem with television, is that people like what's on it when they see themselves, irrespective of the quality. You know, intellectually, I could probably dismiss Ironside very easily... As, as having its limitations and its dubious ideological things. But there's some things you've just got to go with and enjoy. And, and, and I was not able to do that with Ironside, and I'm still able to do that with Ironside. I can just sit back and enjoy it. For and what it, it is. And equally, it doesn't have crass disability in it. For example, I've had a guest recently, and I said to her, you know, don't you ever just want to sit down and watch a programme and pray to God disability's not in it? because it'll suddenly appear and it ruins the whole thing because you suddenly start after thinking, oh, God, where's this going? And with Ironside, even though it's about disability, you can sit back and think it's nothing to do with disability whilst you're there. He had a great van, didn't he? <laughs> he had two vans, in he fact. His vans changed <laughs> in the middle of, of about the third or fourth series. You see, I've watched it too much. And do you possess any uh, Ironside memorabilia? I actually have quite a lot of Ironside memorabilia. <laughs> do you? I, wasn't, I didn't know the answer to this one. <laughs> I, I actually have the Ironside board game. I love this. Your wife is cringing <laughs> and they've got her head in the hands. Yep, the house is full. <laughs> <laughs> I've got cigar rings... <laughs> Uh, one of the bizarre things is, and they're, they're almost all from Spain, Ironside was one of the most successful television programmes ever in Spain. I'm not quite sure why, but they loved it. And so a lot of Ironside memorabilia is Spanish. <laughs> well, apart from the cigar rings, what else? I've got the van. The van. Obviously, in fact. I've not life-size, <laughs> I hope. No, no, I've got three or four little vans, dinky toys. Uh-huh. Uh, I've got some other stuff, but I don't know what it is. I think I've got some cards, and I actually have a 16mm cine film of one of the episodes that was used as a promotion for the show to uh, go round clubs in America to <laughs> promote the show. Now, That's sad, isn't it? <laughs> it is quite. Do you show guests when they come round to your house? <laughs> no, it's all carefully hidden away. <laughs> I might get the board game out, but the, the the sad thing about the board game is, is Ironside walks. No, I didn't know that when I got it, and he walks. He's a standing up character, which is a mm. which is a bit. He's on the front cover in a wheelchair and everything, and obviously it's a detective game, a bit like Cluedo. So, uh, but the reality. Okay, well, in a minute, I see that on the playlist we do have the Ironside theme, and I'd like you to play that in a minute. <laughs> but before we do. Um, with all this talk of television and, and all this talk of you not watching television now, mm-hmm. um, what would make you turn it back on? What would you, you know, if you were <coughs> responsible for commissioning or creating your own programme, what would it be like? Because I, I, I want a sense of what would be okay in, in Dr. Mm. Dark's world, mm. what would be a decent disability TV programme? I think it would be something that, that's, that's about. I don't mind things about impairment, i.e. about our bodies, as long as it has a bit of sophistication about the notion of disability, i.e. the social oppression of impaired people. So I think something... I I think, for example, uh, a programme about going to Lourdes 
with disabled people that, that, that that's made with wit often you will get and i think channel 4 did one recently following someone there to go there to be cured which has no wit no sophistication no intelligence and is just crass drivel uh, and i think going with a few people who know one another that's witty perhaps one or two of them going for the cure one of them two going for the crack one of them two to laugh at the whole experience mm. and to be highly critical i think that would be a cracking program if i made it what would it be called? It would be called Liz and Paul's uh, Sharabang. <laughs> <laughs> the Sharabang de Lourdes. I would love to go. <clears throat> and all that religious tat as well that we could buy. <laughs> and all the water we could have at the end. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and Dad a free bath. So proud. A free bath. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good thing is, would we come out of the Lourdes water with new wheelchairs? <laughs> That's the question. Well, I do actually say I have been to Lourdes and I was cured. I had an infection and I drank the water and is this I was true? cured. It is true. But I was taking antibiotics with the water, so that may have had some impact. I want to know more. Did you go to Lourdes as a child? No, I went as an adult no, not long ago. No, really? It was on a pilgrimage, <laughs> which I did as an atheist to Santiago de Compostela. Uh-huh. But I went to Lourdes and I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was an amazing place. Why? Uh, it's like... Jesus in Blackpool, really. <laughs> and it was just so crass. But at the same time, deeply, deeply tragic, seeing the people queuing up to have their baths and their waters. And and I wasn't critical of the people who, who believe in it. In fact, you know, on some days, I envy that kind of belief and faith, and it's nice for them. Uh, but it was, that, it was that contrast between the absolute tat and the absolute notion of faith and the purity of that faith that would mm. make people do that. Are you, um, are you a spiritual person at all? Am I a spiritual person? No, I'm a complete atheist. Complete? Complete and utterly, yes. As opposed to just a partial atheist. As opposed to partial. As I said to the Mormons who knocked on the door this morning, I'm an atheist, and they said, why? And I said, well, life's experiences taught me that. <laughs> but good luck with your quest. And why do you think, um, you said, you know, it's tragic seeing people with such faith um, going to Lewis, absolutely in hope of that cure. Mm-hmm. Why, why, do people ha- why do people go to Lourdes? I mean, and I also say that also as a way of explanation because I've encountered recently talking about Lourdes, a lot of people aren't aware of what it is mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what happens there. And mm-hmm. it would just be good to hear from you, I think, you know, what, what Lourdes represents to a lot of people and why you think they go there in, in search of. Well, ultimately, in, in search of normality. You know, coming down to the notion of normality, often it's people who don't want to be what they are, which is different and disabled and diseased often, and they want to be normal, which they see as whole. And and I don't just mean people with, with diseases like cancer or whatever. I think you get a lot of disabled people going there with congenital or acquired impairments that aren't in any way classified as disease, who just basically want their normality either back or to have it at least once in their lives. And that, that, that's really, really... It's sad to see if, if, as I do, as I've said, it is a complete illusion. And I think that about religion as well. So those two things can make it... A, it you know, some of it was really, really sad to watch. You did, know. You, did you feel um, anything spiritual? You know, did you feel anything? Or just the, oh, my goodness, this is tragic? Or, you know, but I, I sometimes wonder, you know, if you're amongst that, if you're amongst so many people believing uh no i didn't but i was i and i would say i was genuinely 
uh, envious of the ability of people to actually experience that because many people did and and again i wouldn't knock it because it does improve a lot of people's lives because it gives a boost to that notion of faith that they have and if that's all they have and that is all a lot of disabled people have because of the way society treats them they don't have much else because most of us live in poverty and exclusion you know i don't want to knock that and i think that that's good for them and it's what they needed the Ironside theme tune by Quincy Jones. Didn't realise he did the original. He did, and in fact, he is in a in an episode where he really? plays a jazz musician, and he's incredibly young in it. It's just amazing. <laughs> I love that theme. It's very evocative. I'm, I am um, the other presenter on before you was talking about Columbo. I'm a Columbo fan, so yeah. <clears throat> well, um, let me just say something else about Ironside, because not a lot of people. There's a great kind of noir writer who's a classic of American writers. Called, his name's Jim Thompson. And a lot of people have seen stuff he's written that's turned into films. He's dead, long time dead, alcoholic and all that kind of stuff. But he actually wrote a novelisation of an episode of Mm -hmm. Ironside. And you can buy it in paperback and it is a fantastic read. And I I mean that kind of literally, literary as well. The dialogue is just cracking. And it's about race and that notion of race and disability. And Jim Thompson is just a fantastic writer. And he gets it just right. Oh, it's fantastic. Thank you for that recommendation. (laughs) People will be writing. We have had a couple of emails already, but I'm going to save the questions (laughs) at this point. I want to go back to something that we were talking about before the theme tune. Mm. And uh, we were talking about religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're saying that you're not a spiritual person. You're an atheist, absolutely. A committed atheist, if you can be. Yep. And... uh, do you wish you had faith? Uh, sometimes, yes. I think I've I've seen people that it's given great comfort to. Oh, sorry about that. And <laughs> a little bit of indigestion there. <laughs> indigestion, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was going to make a joke there, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because in the uh, while the song was playing, I was saying, "What do I do? What do I do when I have wind?" Oh, a little bit of a uh, little bit of coke wind there, but. Uh, you obviously need to turn you the obviously work, for you. You obviously work for the BBC talking about Coke. Absolutely. <laughs> what? <laughs> they don't pay us that way. <laughs> no, I do. I, 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 that's why I think, for example, there's a big attack on religion at the moment. And a buy-off scientists, rationalist scientists, Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and all that kind of thing. And I, my, my problem with that is there's two things. A, I think science is no more of a delusion and a fantasy and a kid in itself than religion is. So you can't stand up and say, oh, we know the truth and you lot don't. But equally, it does give a lot of people a lot of comfort and I wouldn't want to take that away from them. And by and large, it doesn't do any harm, uh, less so than capitalism or things like that, which is often what wars are about, especially in contemporary society, even though they may be dressed up as other things. But yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, I don't sit around, oh God, I wish I had faith. But I can see it would be a very nice thing to have, and it is for a lot a nice thing to have for a lot of people. So, uh, what do you think happens after you die? Nothing. It's the end. Really? Absolutely. Oblivion. One of my nightmares, which I've had for about forty years, in fact, is floating through space in an Earth-sized coffin with a little glass window out into the bleak eternity of nothingness. There you go. Wow. And that's the optimistic view, <laughs> is that you're <laughs> aware of that's that the glass oblivion. Half full view. Exactly. That's that's knowing that you're know, being aware of oblivion, but you're not even that. It's just. So nothing. you just think that that's what you're expecting. That's and are you worried about that? I'm worried fear? about dying, and it scares the living daylights out of me. Yeah, but because uh, I quite like living, and I quite like 
doing what I do. But is that so? Is the fear based? Because obviously, if you think nothing's going to happen, is the fear based on you just don't want to miss out? I suppose that is it. Yes, it's actually quite a selfish thing. I think the world would would be a lesser place without me in a kind of egomaniacal way. Uh, I think the fear comes from being at a special school where children died around you. Uh, and how that was dealt with, which is part of why I'm an atheist, the, the religious element that they used to do that was just insulting. But equally, being as a child aware of the futility and pointlessness of life, and it is completely and utterly pointless. Life. Life, yeah. You believe that. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I'm only, I'm only asking that tone because I'm thinking, then what gets you up in the morning? What do you get up for? Well, in what? a way, the, the kind of humanist belief that th- this is it, so you might as well enjoy it, and you might as well help one another to enjoy it. And the more we help one another, the more we'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But And it's about doing it for oneself and for everybody else. But it is completely pointless. So you take a humanist as opposed to a hedonistic view of it. Uh, indeed, indeed. <laughs> I think hedonism has its place, and you've still got to enjoy it for you because it's your life. But I think the problem with the hedonistic kind of attitude is that often it leads to you shortening your own life and and this is it so you might as well try and keep hold of it as long as i'm far too risk averse in my life i think i think i i have far too many fears that prevent me doing many many things flying things like that not eating obviously but <laughs> so you won't fly i won't fly no at all at all have you ever no really mm-hmm. Be- and you won't because what do you think is going to happen <clears throat> is it too much like that coffin floating through space? It is a little bit like that <coughs> coffin floating through space, but equally it's not meant to be, in my view. You just look at them and you think, no, no, I'm not getting on that. I always tell people it's because my legs will swell up and my hydrocephalus, but it's just fear and terror. Really? And I don't Could need anything to do make you? No. No, nothing whatsoever. What about... So have and you... it's about control. Sure. I, you know, I drive and you're m- much more likely to be killed in a car crash than you are in an aeroplane. Uh, but I'll drive, and I'll happily drive. But it's about that notion of control, and I, it's that lack of control. And I am risk-averse in those kind of situations, which is which is one of my major failings, I would say. Hmm. And your others? <laughs> See, well, come on, I eat too then. much. Uh, I'm a little bit too egotistical, combined with the sense of worthlessness and hopelessness. Yeah, I'm, I'm an enigma. Hmm. I think I suffer from the hegemony of normality that, that kids us one thing and delivers nothing and just ends up being sad and pathetic. So you would put um, death as one of your fears? You would put flying? Death, death's the number one. And uh, Flying's part of the death one. Okay. <laughs> wow. So in your life, have you travelled greatly? Uh, obviously, that's limited you. Uh Continent-wise. <laughs> oh, do we, we always have to get back to your bowels and bladder, Paul, don't we? Uh, I mainly stick to Europe, so but I drive all over Europe and that kind of thing, So, and I'm happy doing that. And I, if I get rich, I'll get on a boat and go to America mm-hmm. or all those kind of places. And would you like to? I sometimes like the idea, you're talking about TV programmes, I think a trip across America, a couple of people uh, just looking at the whole notion of culture from the position of being outsiders as disabled people is a, is a great programme idea. And so I would, I'd quite like to. And not necessarily to do the traditional stuff. Like, I have no desire to go to Disney World or all those kind of things whatsoever. I know you have an affection for doing that. Possibly. But uh, I know I did. I'd just like to go to New York and drive across America to LA and back. I think that would be a cracking. Mm. And it'd be a cracking film as well. Mm. But obviously I'd have to get a boat there and a boat back. 
It's possible, though, isn't it? It is possible, and quite a lot of people do it, but it's quite expensive relative to flying. So is it, um, has it made it onto your list of things you'd like to do before you die? I don't really have a list of things I'd like to do before I die. I think because that would make me, the idea of dying, much too close. Uh, and I, and equally, I, I actually think as I get older, I want to do less and less. And even of the things I wanted to do that I haven't done, I actually move towards not wanting to really do them because it's much more about just trying to be me, where I am. Are you, what age are you now? What age am I? I'm 45 and a half. 45 and a half. Mm-hmm. And do you feel more content now that you're that age than you have been? Oh, that's a difficult one. I think I am much more content in many respects and much more discontented in others. So, for example, like the idea of getting rid of the television, that, that's rooted in a deep discontentment with that whole system. But equally, it's a contentment that's allowed me to do it, get rid of it and say that it doesn't matter. I think because I work in disability, I get satisfaction from that. But equally, if you work in disability and you have anything to do with people who think they're normal, it's like getting blood out of a stone and it's a nightmare. So you get greater discontentment. And equally, I think the notion of disability now is 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 actually quite a negative one. I think there was a positive moment for five, ten years you know, up until fairly recently. And I think the notion of disability as a positive thing is deteriorating rapidly. Okay, well, we're going to come back to that later on. I do want mm-hmm. to talk about that mm-hmm. later on. Um, mm, what do I want to ask? Well, there's so many things. Start at the beginning. There are so many things. Uh, we, we do have um, an email come in, mm-hmm. actually, from Anne Whitehurst. Hello, Anne, if you're listening. I've always wanted to say that. That sounds so radio, doesn't it? Hello, Anne, if you're listening. Don't know where you're from, but uh, um, I like a couple of the questions here. Is Paul really an Australian? And what part of Aussie land is he from? <laughs> it's bizarre, actually, because I'm from a place in Surrey called Camberley. And it's Camberley. the way I say Camberley, that people have often mistaken me for an Australian. Mm-hmm. The clever people mistaken me for a New Zealander, but it's usually an Australian. But I'm not. I'm from Surrey in in England. But because I went to a special school, I think I had a lot of teachers and nurses who had a broad range of accents, and I've picked up some of their pronunciation. And are you very good at accents, then? <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm, I'm fantastic at accents. Really? I am. You can do one. No, I can do lots. But really? the point is, is if I ever try and name them uh-huh. or tell you what I'm going to do... That's my downfall. Okay. <laughs> so you're not really... Is it more like speaking in tongues? Uh, it, or rambling. Rambling rambling with spasticity. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the other question that I like from Anne is, uh, why does Paul love the use of the word hegemony? Hegemony. 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 Yes, uh, because Hegemony? I think it's a cracking word. Really? And what, uh, what does it mean? I can't even say it, so what does it mean? It's the social process of coercion without force. There the you go. The social process of coercion without force. Uh, give an, uh, give well, an example. Well, if we're talking about normality, for example, okay. you know, society doesn't force people to think that normal is good mm-hmm. and that they want to be normal. There's no force like military or social. There's no absolute force. But what there is are just subtle social processes that make people think they want to be normal. Okay. So that's what it means? 
You can concentrate on two things at once. I can. I'm a multi-skilled handicap person. You were meant to be a multitasker. I didn't think men were very good at that, Paul. I'm very good at it. Really? I'm just a big woman at heart, really. (laughs) (laughs) I thought those breasts reminded me of something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's all going on here. It's very exciting. Um, So that's what hegemony... Why do you use it so much, Paul? Uh, Because I think many things in society work through the process of hegemony. We all have the thoughts we have, often through the society that we live in and its processes, television, culture, theatre, all those kind of things. And we all think that they're either correct, like common sense. We all think that everything's obvious because it's common sense. But they're not. They're social constructs. They're social ideas that a particular society pushes and that applies to virtually everything we think and feel. I think uh, Foucault said the author is dead. And what he meant by that is, is no one can have an original thought anymore. Mm-hmm. Everybody's thinking and thoughts are based on previous thinking and thoughts. And so the author is dead. There is no such thing as originality now. Wow. So that's deep. That's deep for Wednesday <laughs> afternoon. It is. I do think it is. You're listening to Liz Carr. I'm here interviewing Dr. Paul Dark on Wednesday, the 5th of September. Um, we just heard You'll Have Time, song by William Shatner. And uh, we were talking about death, weren't we? As, I think it's our favourite subject, isn't it? Really? I think it might be. How would you like to die, Paul? How would I like to die? Well, as I still wake up in the middle of the night screaming with terror at the thought of dying, uh, the idea of thinking about how I'd like to die... I'd like to die a long, miserable death. Okay. So that it was as long as possible, uh, and then for it to be quite quick at the end. Right. Uh, um, and, and by the sea. By the sea. In the sun. That would be my aim. I think if I, if I got a terminal diagnosis, I would just move now to the seaside, in the sun, Spain or France, and then die. I like the idea of being buried in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. Isn't that bizarre? Why? Uh, mainly because of the cemeteries I've ever been to in England I don't like. Uh, and I quite like French cemeteries in the little villages. You know, they're quite quaint and they sort of, they mean a bit more. And it's that notion of being meaningful. But I want to be buried. I don't want to be cremated, for example. Because? Well, I want a stone. I want, the, I want people in a hundred years' time to walk by and say, oh, look at that stone. Even if they have no idea who I is. Uh, well, yes. Mm. What, uh... What do you want your epitaph to be, then? <coughs> oh, that's a difficult one. Here lies Paul Dark. <laughs> he tried <laughs> and failed. Never wanted to die. <laughs> he was a big man in so many ways. <laughs> oh, just loser. <laughs> he never wanted to die, but he did. Loser. If you have any better ideas, listeners, please do email him. <laughs> that's... <laughs> Dark at WCRFM.com And title your thing Epitaphs If you were to die today, Paul Yes What would you say your greatest achievement has been in your life? Oh, my greatest achievement would be my son, Walker Walker Dark Indeed Who will be joining us in a little while, I believe For Walker's weather, indeed Walker's weather Indeed Uh, He would be my greatest achievement Why? Uh, because I think he's a good lad, he's clever, he's witty, he's intelligent and he's a pain as well sometimes but I think that's, if you believe that life is pointless and ends when you end in relation to you then all you have is what you can leave behind and Walker is it Mm. he probably doesn't like to be called it but (laughs) life is just one long tag game really isn't it so you're, um, you're married I am and you have a son 
How, yeah. how old's Walker? Walker is nearly 13. Nearly 13. Mm-hmm. So you've almost got a teenage son. Mm-hmm. You've got, you live here in Wolverhampton? I live in glorious Do you think you live a good life? I think I live a cracking life. Really? I think it's it's fairly easy. It's quite varied, quite fulfilled, quite full of variety and choice. And I think I that's what's always amusing when people look at disabled thinking, oh, they're sad and you know it's really tragic. I have a better life, as indeed do you, than virtually every normal person I know. <laughs> so, for a working class crippled boy from Surrey. Mm-hmm. How, how did you make it so it looks make like... Make it big. It, it looks like you've got it all, really. <laughs> it looks like I've got it all. The legend that is pulled up. It does. Uh, I think the key thing was to move from away from Surrey to Wolverhampton. <laughs> uh, uh, and sounds... and many must be shocked at that. <laughs> it made a big difference in my life. It was when I first got married, uh, there were some family difficulties, which I'm sure you'll ask me about later, in getting married. And But in Surrey, I was a low-ranking civil servant with a pointless, dead-end life. I got married, we moved to Wolverhampton, I went to university, did lots of things, got into different things, the arts, that I never would have in Surrey. In Surrey, I'm just a working-class oikus common, you know. So you've had to move, you had to physically and geographically, I guess, move away from, in a way, your past as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Past, family... Very, very good things to do, and I'd recommend it to everybody. And 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 I always say, you know, I don't I don't want to live in Wolverhampton for the rest of my life. I'd I'd like that challenge and again of going somewhere very different to start over again and and just construct for myself a whole new life, like like I did in Wolverhampton. Would you? Uh, you talked a lot about travels to Europe mm-hmm. and uh, and about even being buried um, in France or Spain or something like that. Mm-hmm. Would you? Do you envisage moving over to Europe? In the next few years? It's a complicated one. I think ideally, yes. And I think I will, for some of the time, move to somewhere like France or Spain. But my problem is there's a dependency on a free health service as a disabled person. Possibly not for much longer. (laughs) Well, that may make it easier to move to a foreign country. Because I think, like you're you're saying, a lot of it isn't going to be free. I think you're getting rationing here that's starting to be quite threatening towards disabled people, especially as they get older, such as myself. And so, but ideally, yeah, I I do. I I envisage myself living in France or Spain. And is that part of the, I mean, we seem to be living in a world, you know, a world where you know, a place in the sun, it, it's the thing to do is to move abroad or to have a, a holiday home or mm-hmm. whatever to, to go to a better place. Oh, you don't want to be in England. I'm a, parents are always saying that. What What is the here anymore? There's nothing in the UK to, to well, live here for. Are you part of that bandwagon or <laughs> do you have your own? Well, I, I, in a way, and it sounds bizarre, I was on that bandwagon and I moved to Wolverhampton. I, I had to construct my life that was better in another place, and that was Wolverhampton. And I think that's what that bandwagon is, uh, and so I'd say I'm I'm above that. So your next <laughs> but, uh, bandwagon moving, would... but it wouldn't be a bandwagon. It would be out of having done that and seeing that that's an attractive thing mm-hmm. to do. That challenge, as you yourself know, from moving from Nottingham, from Liverpool to Nottingham to London. Mm-hmm. You know that that moving is. If you do it in the right way and, and you have a bit of luck, it's a fantastic thing and it changes your life, mm. quite quite unimaginably so. So were you running away? From... Yeah, I suppose there's an element of that, running away from Surrey. I think, you know, uh, we couldn't afford to 
buy anywhere to live. We could we wouldn't have got a flat or anything on the council. Uh, we were living in a very small flat with my father, which wasn't very good. And so we ran away from that. We ran away from the fact that we could never have afforded to do that. We ran away from the fact that I hated my job because I think I asked Claire to marry me and then I quit my job <laughs> just to endear myself to my in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> Not only is a cripple, he's unemployed as well. <laughs> and he's common. And they sound like Punch and Judy. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's the bat that they used to beat me over the head with that made me think of Punch and Judy. <laughs> Surely you'd never, uh, you'd never run away from Wolverhampton, though. No, that, and in a way, that's what I'm saying about the bandwagon of going abroad. Is I wouldn't. It's not running away from Wolverhampton. It, it's going into a new challenge that I see as an exciting opportunity and something I would choose to do, not running away. Mm-hmm. Plus, I hate English weather. I hate the cold. We are. I'm an ageing, chubby, handicapped man. I don't like the cold and the wet. Yeah, but I've seen you with your uh, your hanky on your head and your socks and sandals, Paul. That's it. I want to sweat a bit more. <laughs> I don't sweat enough in Wolverhampton. <laughs> okay, well, you've talked about it a number of times, um, <laughs> and I and alluded to it. You you are married. I am married. Yes. To the lovely Claire. The lovely Claire. The yes. lovely Claire. She'd be so proud that you've called her that. For for how long? How long have you been married now? Nearly 25 years. Really? <laughs> uh, which, again, in today's society is quite an achievement. It is. And what do you put the success of your marriage down to? Uh, love. 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 Is that how it began? Was it love at first sight? Love at first fondle? It, it, <laughs> yeah. I don't know this. I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued about all You're this. You're intrigued by this. Uh, Especially as your son's about to come in the studio. <laughs> No, it was, uh, I think the reason for it lasting is adversity. I think that, that that has helped, actually, adversity, like moving to a new place that was quite alien from where we lived. Surrey is not like Wolverhampton. Even, you know, I grew up on a council estate, but a council estate in Surrey is not like a council estate in the Midlands. Uh, it's, what, what shall I say? I think, what can I say? Not what shall I say? What can I say? And I think it's a lot of different things. I think there's adversity. I think it's it's a choice, you know, uh, compromise, partnership, uh, improving yourself as a person. I think if I'd have stayed, for example, when I was in Surrey, if I'd have been in the civil service and hated it and Claire had remained a nurse, you can ask me why I married a nurse in a minute, but, you know, she didn't like her her job, I didn't like my job. And if we'd have stayed there, we'd have just been miserable together. Whereas we came here and we, we ended up both getting degrees. Claire learnt Spanish, went to Spain for a while. We, we, that made us travel more. I did what I did. And, and that growing as a person, I think, together and separately doing different things helped. <laughs> Are you still in love now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And lust. <laughs> which helps too. <laughs> and... An- how did you meet? How did we meet? I was in hospital with a broken leg, uh-huh. and Claire was one of the nurses, not on my ward, on another ward. And I was about to be discharged. Mo, she'd come down to borrow the ward phone, and I threw some sweets at her. Why? Uh, uh, mainly because. Nice bum? Yes, probably. <laughs> I liked, like that. I wanted to bend over or something. And then. <laughs> oh, matron. <laughs> oh, matron. Oh, matron. No, she wasn't a matron. 
And so then when I was going to be discharged, I went down to the other ward and I said, here's my number, give us a ring. And she did. And she did. And we've never looked back, mainly because there was people chasing us. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, how you said love's kept you together. How soon did you know you were in love? Well, we were married within four or five months. Was there a reason for that? Was it a shotgun? (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Uh, I think we realised we were just made for one another. There were other complicated things about families as well. Neither of our families particularly wanted us to get married. Mine because they were patronising and hers because they didn't particularly like the idea of Claire marrying a working class cripple with no job. So you're from different side of the track. Different side of the track. Really? I'm the pleb. And she's the nice middle class girl. Uh huh. So you were, uh, you were a disappointment. A bit is of blow. Is that like an understatement? I think a bit of blow rather than a, rather a than a disappointment. Yes, but they've they've grown to love me. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that's common? Do you think that even in this day and age, do you think that approach of you know if you're going uh, to meet um, a partner's family, for example, for the first time, <laughs> do you think? that, you know, that kind of disapproval or disappointment is almost inherent. I think it's probably worse now because I think there are less disabled people about and I think normality as an an idea is much, much more prevalent as as a prerequisite. I think in the past it used to be an ideal. Let's all be, you know, nice and happy and normal when i think you know the older generation it wasn't like that and they knew that younger generation everybody wants the absolute perfection and ideal of normality life you know wealth health and happiness and i think that makes it much harder for disabled people when they meet their potential partners i think it's harder to get a partner and i think if you do i think the 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 rejection you may receive from from family family and friends because it's not just family i think people often say it's family but friends are often as bad in their rejection of someone's choice. And your family, um, did they reject Claire? Uh, Or were they thrilled that you'd done good, (laughs) the boy done good? I think they they weren't thrilled, actually. I think they had a much more patronising attitude towards me. Uh, I'm not really sure what what they thought, but I think that's because I'm not sure they really know what they thought. I think my dad always sort of thought, oh, well, you know, you're disabled, it can't last. And he was always putting a downer on it because he thought it wouldn't work. He was pleased, but he thought, you know, this isn't going anywhere. So, you know, prepare yourself to try and help me. But it didn't particularly. It just used to annoy me. And where were you married? <laughs> where were I married? <laughs> well, we eloped around the corner in Woking, in Surrey. <laughs> because our parents uh, weren't too keen on it. So we just thought, well... Before they do anything silly in trying to stop it, let's just get it done and sorted. And so we just... And then we'll face it. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it was, it was very sad and tragic at times, but equally it was very, very funny because people are just bizarre things, you know. We used to go round to the relatives and so they, you'd hear stuff and and then you'd say, they'd say, oh, you know, you, you, we don't think you should get married yet. And you're sitting there thinking, well, actually, we are already. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a secret? Yes. For how long? Uh, for a it's few... about four years. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, mine law still don't know we're married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another revelation. <laughs> Not only are you my father. 
<laughs> I'm your brother as well. <laughs> Kylie and I don't think that would have Chip. suited him as a little boy. Really. No, no. But, but that kind of name is that not people doing that? No, now? but it, there's not much originality in that. I can see why people do that, but I'd say come up with their own names. I love the the French girl who's called Perifique, who's a bit like being called the M25. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was a classic name, but equally, it's just a nice name. It's and it is much more common in America. Uh, unfortunately, it does have a, a tarnished association, in that there is a famous person with the name, and that's George W. Bush, and the W stands for Walker. Not a lot of people know that, and I didn't know that at the time. Uh, and in fact, his father is called George Walker Bush <laughs> the first. So how lucky Walker how is! How lucky Walker is indeed. But, um, and that's just having me as a father. <laughs> I was going to ask him, but I but, uh, thought it best we usher him out of the studio. Indeed. What questions he wanted to ask his dad, that could have got a bit a bit out of hand. Um, I had a number of questions that I asked you to think about before today, and one of them, which links, you've been talking about uh, authors, mm-hmm. um, and I asked you, what book did you think, or do you think, that everyone should read? Well, that would be The Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. And that would be why? Why? Because it's a fantastic book, and I think people often ask me, why do I like American literature instead of English literature? And it's, and, and in a way, The Confederacy of Dunces en- encapsulates that. Uh, American literature is about the whole notion of identity as normal. And I don't mean relation to disability, but in relation to just the ideology of normal within capitalism. So it has those kind of uh, diverse ideologies and it's exploring them, capitalism, identity, what it is to be a human being, what it is to be an American, which is a constructed identity. That's a fairly recently constructed identity uh, as, as in an, an, the 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 ideal American as normal is and and American literature reveals that and explores that English literature is just about being clever plot narrative it is quite vacuous and empty be it Martin Amis but very well structured well Martin Amis isn't that bad but equally the John McEwans of this world even right back to Dickens but it, but it's also the attitude of the English reader as well that I don't like in relation to English literature they are all obsessed with the notion of narrative and plot that's just banal boring you know american lit has got so much more sophistication character and depth which is a bizarre thing to say because people think americans are a bit shallow Mm. and thick uh their literature is far superior to our kind of intelligent literature okay so the confederacy of dunces by john kennedy tool by john kennedy tool rush out and buy that now now everyone should read that um the other one of the other questions that i asked you are three songs Mm. that are meaningful to you mm-hmm. in some way. Now we've had two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start with the first one. You chose "Why Can't We Live Together." That's by Timmy Thomas. Never heard the song or the singer. And you never want to again. I, I didn't <laughs> say that, but it's explain it, why. It, it has a lot of memories and associations for me. I I first heard it in about 1970 something, and it's because I got a little tape recorder for Christmas and I taped it off the television. I think of the top of the pops, and then it was a really exciting big present, and so that's a nice memory. And I think I liked it at the time, and I do now. It's because I didn't live together with my family. I went to a special school, and so we were segregated. So it had a kind of emotional resonance. I know it's about race and colour by and large, but it applied to disability and how I felt as well. And I like the simplicity, and 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 it's it's a song from my childhood that I just think is really nice. Okay. Um, 
I'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. I will come back to that. Uh, the second song mm. was To Dream by Andy Williams. I have heard that one. <laughs> now, why that one? Uh, well, it's not because I like Hondas, obviously, because it's the Honda advert at the moment. It's because, uh, although despite uh, my beliefs as an atheist and a pessimist, I, I like dreaming for a better world, and I think that song encapsulates that. And I think a better world does require self-sacrifice and I think that song is is a rabble-rousing kind of chorus to that kind of ideal and I know I don't have it most of my waking day but it's nice to sit back and feel that that euphoria it's almost like a hymn to me and uh, and I just love it and it was it's from a musical called The Man of La Mancha as well and, and that's about people who live under the delusions of of their own life like normal people do and disabled people do and i just love that whole don quixote kind of connection as well do you um you said that can be quite rabble rousing that song Mm -hmm. for you um do you believe that do you believe in dreams do you believe that things can and will change no 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 Uh, they do change and they will change i think ultimately for, for example, for disabled people, I think we're entering a long, dark tunnel. But we will come out of it because humanity has to or else it will kill itself. So I suppose I do dream uh, in the longer term. And that's what that song is about. It's about the longer term dream. In the short term, there's no hope for us. And you also worked at... I'm just thinking from what you've said earlier. So, you know, you are... Um, you're not necessarily a hedonist, but you do believe in humanity and the good of humanity. So mm-hmm. you do believe in that things will change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I do, and, and that's that's the enigma that I am. I think is that I you're not, do. You're not totally dark by name no, and nature. No, I, I have my moments, and I have my moments the other way. And in a way, I wouldn't say I was either, but I'm both. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that's why I like that song because it makes me believe in that for the moment. I think a friend of mine once said, uh, you know, that they don't like music because it makes them believe in God. That's why I do like music because it makes me believe in. Not God, but have that euphoria of humanity for that moment. And that's what I like about that song. And few songs do it to the, the degree to which that, that does. That one does. Walk in the Black Forest by Horst Jankowski. Jankovic. Jankovic, OK. Um, mm-hmm. Why have you picked that song? Well, it's because it was my dad's favourite song. OK. And my dad was probably one of the key figures in my life. And he taught me a lot. He taught me about justice and fairness. He was a trade unionist. But he taught me about being pathetic and useless as well, because he often was. Uh, and that's, that's all of us, really. I think he was a, he was a, he was a heroic figure, mm-hmm. but equally, equally a pathetic figure because of what he did and, and how he lived. Uh, and often through no choice of his own. He was crushed by... He was a working-class man crushed by capitalism. You know, he, he had his own business, but then he struggled and he ended up working in factories and and he was a, a crushed individual. But he believed in justice. And I think in a way that's very much disturbingly, I think I become liking day by day. Mm-hmm. But is he, you know, we, we mentioned that word role models before. Is mm. your dad, was he, is he a role model for you? He's a role model in the sense, not that I want to be like him, but I think I learn a lot from him mm-hmm. about what it is to be a good human being and what it is to be a bad human being so for example my dad was a compulsive liar which i hate and despise and i hate liars i don't hate him i love him even though he's dead but he taught me that 
and, and equally, but equally to accept that people behave how they do for other reasons, injustices, capitalism, you know, the, the nature of society. Were you aware of that when you were growing up or was it only in hindsight and when you moved away that you saw him? No, I think, no, I think, I think I, re- I saw that in him from quite an early age. Uh, you know, he split up from my mother and they had a very acrimonious thing, but he was still always very positive and supportive of her, though she wasn't of him. But he didn't mind that and he accepted that because almost he thought and showed me and made me believe that, you know, people are like they are for reasons. It's not random. People aren't unpleasant out of random nastiness. It's, it's for a reason. And my mother was nasty for a reason. So, for example, I think my brothers grew up hating her. I didn't hate her at all. Luckily, I didn't really feel anything towards her because I could see, you know, she was like she was because of her life and what it led her to, as was my father's. And that's a that's a good lesson to They're learn. They're a product of what had happened to them and their Absolutely. experiences. They, and they they had choices and autonomy in that, and they made decisions sometimes good, sometimes bad, as do we all. But the the processes of society had a massive impact on them that they couldn't escape. And I think that's by and large true of most people, and often particularly of disabled people. There's um, something that you often say, and I, I hope I get it right and do it just as you often say: uh, "Forgive them, for they know not what they do." Absolutely. That's not my attempt to be Jesus, obviously. No, I'm aware you weren't the first person to say that. But just as I'm listening to you describing what you learnt from your your dad in particular, that sounds like something that very much encapsulates. Absolutely. So, you know, I think all the problems I've ever had off of people, for example, the people who've come up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, you, you know, uh, the Lord forgives your father for his sins, that's why you are. You know, people say, oh, how do you put up that? Oh, yeah, give him a good right back and I said well no I don't because there's no point you know you've got to understand why they have come to think like that it's it's not particularly their fault and to some extent it gives them great comfort to think like that and and what people say and do it's about themselves and their own lives it's often it's nothing to do with me even if they transfer that to me and it's about seeing that you um you weren't an only child you've got brothers and sisters no no I've got four brothers four brothers four brothers very competitive very aggressive uh, are you the only disabled person? I family? am the only disabled child and I was the youngest. And how did that affect? Did it affect your relationship with your brothers, with your father? It's a difficult one. I think I am the independently living disabled person that I am in society. For example, a lot of the people I went to school with are in institutions are dead. Why am I not? You know, very little difference between us. And I think partly it's those moments that twist on a sixpence and it was having four brothers who treated you with the contempt any brothers treat their <laughs> younger brother. I remember my brother trying to stab me and I had to jump out the front window, which, trust me, for somebody who couldn't walk was bloody hard work. <laughs> but it makes you a certain kind of person, and that's... So I've got to be grateful. That's why I've seen you scrambling for that last prawn cracker <laughs> when we've been having a takeaway, Paul. Now I see where that nimble-fingeredness has come from. Excellent. But it does, it makes, you, it makes you a different guy. You know, I know a lot of disabled people who, who there's no reason they should be in the situation they're in compared to me. They're in institutions or, you know, in completely pointless lives often. And it's, you know, and that's why, again, I don't want to criticise my brothers or my family for the childhood I had because it's why I'm here now. You mentioned earlier about um, your childhood and a lot of that was spent in boarding school. Mm-hmm. Um, was that a positive experience for you? Presumably you weren't living there for with your family, you were away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, did you enjoy it? 
it's again, it's a complicated one. I because of the school I went to, I am who I am, and and by that I mean I'm quite a free thinking, articulate individual who's quite original. And but it's because I went to a school where we weren't educated. I came out with no qualifications. They thought we were beyond education, so they didn't teach us anything. Now, that's a terrible thing, and I'm against special schools, primarily because they fail to deliver any degree of education. But my experience of it is it's why I am here now with all that I have, is because I wasn't educated. I had an enormous freedom of thought that, for example, if I'd have been integrated into the local comprehensive... I'd have had a couple of O-levels, perhaps A-levels, and I'd have been as boring as any other normal person. And I think I wouldn't be the exciting, vibrant, witty, charismatic individual that I am now. It's true. I think if, if I'd have gone to school, I wouldn't have met Claire and I wouldn't be married to Claire and I wouldn't have Walker. Mm. And that's because I went to a special school. Although I think special schools are wrong. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't particularly advocate them now? I would advocate their abolition, utterly and totally. Tell me, because you have told me about this before and I want uh, the listeners to hear about this, tell me about the sports that you used to do at school. The sports? Well, I, I think one of the things you, you've asked me before off air is, is what film would I like to make? Mm-hmm. And in my head I have this fantastic film and it's a film about football and it's because we used to play football as a special school uh, and we're all disabled and we used to play Middle schools, that was 9 to 12-year-old normal schools. So you were all on crutches, were you, in wheelchairs? Yes, we had three goalies in wheelchairs. (laughs) Instead of one? Absolutely. (laughs) Mainly because none of the three could move. So So they just blocked? Exactly. (laughs) The only way they they could score a goal was by getting the ball at your head, basically, because that was the only space. And we all, most of us were on crutches, so these kids used to have these giant steel crutches whacking them across the legs and heads and these poor little kids because equally we were all ages we were from our 8 to 16 in this football team the youngest who was 8 cause probably because he could walk a bit and then 16 year old because he was big and bulky and he could swack a ball with his crutches well that was me in the end and so and these little kids used to come in and, and they were terrified they were scared stiff <laughs> of you know they'd come in and they'd never seen disabled people and they mm-hmm. were faced with we didn't, we, we didn't have offside because we couldn't move. There was no point in offside. <laughs> and, you know, and we used to play football and, you know, our urine bags would come off and hit them, the goalie, and the kid would panic and think, oh, God, what have I just picked up? <laughs> and, and I just think that's a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic film. It's a film waiting to be made. And hopefully I'm going to be the one to do it. I hope so too. Um, <laughs> the other questions that I asked you, um, I wanted to know... And you may have answered this, I'm not sure. The person who has been the most influential in your life? Well, it's different, uh, different, different people at different times. But I, I would say one of the people who's actually changed my life, changed it the most, is an American guy called Ferris Newton, mm-hmm. who, when I was in hospital and I met Claire, I met Claire at the end of when I was in hospital. I was in hospital for nearly four months. Well, there was a middle bit in that four months where the guy in the next bed was called Ferris Newton, and he's an American with a bad back. Bit of a whinger, but, you know, he's an American. And basically, I had therapy with him for about six weeks, all day, every day. And it changed my life. I think if I, for example, had met Claire 
at the beginning of going to hospital, she probably wouldn't have gone out with me and we never would have got married. But I was a different person at the end through therapy. Uh, and, and do you, can I just interrupt? Do you mean formal therapy sessions or actually just talking to him? Oh, there was I thought difference. it was talking to him, but he was quite, I'm quite sure he knew it was formal therapy. Right. Uh, he's a clever lad. He's still going. He's quite an old man now. Uh, and I still see him. And But he that kind of six weeks of exploring uh, my bitterness. You know, I was quite bitter then. You know, I was about 19, 20, 21, I can't remember. And, you know, I'd not enjoyed my childhood, particularly being institutionalised, segregated schools. You know, I'd been trying to go out with girls and whatever and been rejected, and I was quite bitter. And he helped me enormously uh, go through that and understand that. And and he probably had the biggest influence in changing the direction of my life. So, for example, I came out of hospital. Obviously, I took my six months free pay, obviously, at full pay. And then I quit. And I think he, he, he gave me the confidence and said, you know, if you're, not, if you're doing something you don't like, don't do it. Change. And, and that, to him, was an automatic thing that that's what you do. Was he a disabled person? No. No. He was an American. Interesting. Close. Mm. <laughs> well, yes. Quite an impairment. But it, but it did, and, it, and in retrospect, because I didn't know it at the time. That's the point, you know. I didn't sort of come out thinking, oh, God, I've just had six-week therapy, you know. But, uh, but I had, and then when I saw him afterwards and we talked about it, and we'd explored my life, and, and it changed, changed me completely. Wow. It made me calmer, more understanding, more considerate. My father had done that a lot about justice and different things, but putting that into practice, Ferris came in at that key point and actually had a quite a significant impact. It's interesting, the timing. Absolutely. Almost perfect, wasn't it? You know, Absolutely. I'm sure you went into hospital, the last thing you wanted, broken leg, this isn't a good thing. Absolutely. And yet two incredibly important things in your life happened within that four-month period, by the sounds of it. Absolutely. And, and it was all luck, for example. I was in for so long, because I only had a broken leg, but my brother had had a broken leg in that hospital a few years before and they'd done it all wrong and he'd end up suing them for medical negligence and he won and he got a lot of money. So when I went in with a broken leg, they were frightened to touch me. So I didn't have anything done and I was just on traction pulling this broken leg for four months, it, which is just crazy. You know, it was mental as a treatment because they were frightened to touch me. But because I was in for that long, I met Ferris and then I met Claire and, you know... Do you think, uh, you said it was luck, do you believe in coincidence, do you believe in fate, you know, or no. do you just think things just happen and there's no pattern to it, it's all random? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I think I think you can make your own luck, I think you've got to be open to situations, and I think that, again, meeting Ferris, it, he made me, because he was such a, a, an individual, made me open to that kind of thing. And then I was open to other things. But you've got to be open and you, you've got to try... For example, you, I think people say, oh, you're lucky you've got it all. But you put yourself in the right place at the right time. If you don't put yourself in the right place at the right time, you're never going to have that luck. So we put ourselves about. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes. Um, the final question that I asked you to think about, I mm. wanted you to have a bit of preparation, was um, the film that you wish you'd written or directed. So that's a film that's already out there. Mm. Mm. Which would it be? Well, it'd be a number of films, really. I think I'm a big fan of Mel Brooks, especially Young Frankenstein. And again, I think he's a sophisticated comedian. And to me, Young Frankenstein, I, I seem to go on it about it all the time, is, is this notion of normality and difference. Uh, but but great stuff is often about that, even if it doesn't intend to be. And I think Mel Brooks, for example, as a Jewish 
comedian in America in an anti-Semitic era knew what it was to be an outsider, what it was to be different. And he made Young Frankenstein, and that's what that's about. And I can associate with that. So that one, plus I think Lars von Tier's The Idiots, which again is a fantastic exploration of the social construction of abnormality and normality and people's reaction to the, the idea of constructing difference. Now that's... Um a controversial film in, in to many people, isn't it? Yes. It, it has um, a number of non-disabled people who act like they're disabled. They spaz up. That's and that's the drama. Yeah. It's not that they're non-disabled actors playing disabled. That's they're they're, they're non-disabled actors playing normal people pretending to be disabled. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's very controversial. And why is it controversial? And why do you think it's one of the best films? Well, I think I think it's one of the best films because I think it knows what it's doing. It's exploring normality and abnormality and looking at that. But I think a lot of people just see it as a group of disabled of non-disabled people ridiculing disabled people. It's not doing that. It's much more sophisticated and intelligent than that. And I think I I, I wish I could I'd written that and directed that. Really? Mm. You, amongst all the things, I began, you know, by saying that I'd looked you up on Google and mm-hmm. all that, because when you know someone, it's hard to get that distance and think, well, what are all the things that you do? I also went on outside-centre.com or .info, mm-hmm. your website, mm-hmm. um, and just a few of the things that you have done. Mm-hmm. There are pieces of art there. There are your stamp collection, stamp collection. of over a thousand stamps that depict impairment or disability from around the world. I will come back to that in a minute. There is, you've talked about it, the Crippled Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Um, there is uh, disability equality training mm-hmm. on there. There are information about the Outside Centre Festival, which we need to talk about. There are films that you've made. There are pieces of art that you've made. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, firstly, I would say it's not entirely my website. It's with Anne Whitehurst. Okay. The legendary Anne Whitehurst, as I like to think of her. Uh, my partner in crime, in disability art and stuff. Uh, and But I have done a lot. I think it's because it's called not having a proper job. So you end up doing lots of things just to survive, and you end up doing a broad range of things. And it's funny because I was thinking about it the other day. Uh, I've met different people who, who have ordinary lives and you do you end up thinking goodness me that's so it must be so boring to be you you know and I think about me and I do such a range of things I don't particularly make any money at it but it's still much much more interesting and varied and full of variety and I and I actually sat back and thought goodness me that that's really good you know I'm glad I'm not you boring normal people well when i was looking at all of that the, the thing that i wrote down was that you this is the comment you strike me as someone who does what he wants with his time these days <laughs> in with, between worrying i'd say i do what i want with my time right. in between worrying yeah yeah not not entirely because i still have to do certain things to, you have to pay uh, the bills yeah to earn a living but fundamentally if i don't want to do something i don't do it and and that choice i i have i have quite well to do you know and I, I think it's 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 nice to be able to do that and it's because i'm disabled as well why i think because you know for example when i was on benefits many many years ago you're left alone and then when you you enjoy that time you, you think oh, i'm not going to get a proper job so you do do short-term contracts you get grants to do creative things and and i think as a disabled person it is much easier to do that 
because there's less expectation of you. Perhaps funders think you might not die. Survive. Yeah, you might not survive if they give you a proper long-term job. <laughs> Which is probably true enough. <laughs> yes. But um, the stamp collection. The stamp collection. Why? Why? Uh, it's funny. I don't know why. I, I How went, did it begin? Well, I went to a stamp fair in Wombourne, near Wolverhampton. I think just to show Walker, because he was quite little. And we were looking at stamps, and he wanted to get some football ones or tram ones and whatever. And I saw a couple of disability, and I thought, oh, I'll get them. And then he just got into it, and, and, like, and I thought, oh, well, there won't be many. After about the third thousandth one, that's the heating coming on, after I'd got about 3,000, you think, oh, why did I ever start this? But it's fascinating. And, it, and again, it's, it's that whole thing about identity. I think stamps reveal a lot about a country and a lot about how people view other people, view disabled people as objects of charity, as objects of fear, of, of objects of hope and inspiration. And, and that variety, I, I, I just found it interesting, you know, and so I've just kept doing it. And uh, I note that on the website you put out a plea if anybody's got any stamps with impairment or disability. Indeed. To send them to you. <laughs> you know, other things, um, you have your Dr. Dark, not because you're a medical doctor, funnily enough, you have a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, are you a social worker as well? I am a qualified social worker and I was qualified. Ooh, I was his. Uh, did well, you work as a social worker? I didn't. I chose not to. I, I did my placements whilst training. I did one in a geriatric hospital. Now, there's a nightmare scenario. And then I did another one in a disability resource centre. And I thought, I don't ever want to practice as a social worker. But you got a good grant for doing it. So that was what it was worth. And what other... You were saying, you know, now you, you are, as far as you can, picking and choosing what you're doing. You've done an amazing variety of jobs over the years. You were a civil servant. You talked about giving that up when you met Claire and mm-hmm. left hospital. Um, but you have also done some proper jobs. Mm. Some nine-to-five jobs, mm-hmm. which include what? What have you done? Well, I, I was a civil servant for a few years. I also set up a library for Birmingham Social Services, which was nine-to-five. I worked in a community centre in Bilston, which was nine-to-five, running computer training courses. That was like 20, 25 years ago. That was when everybody had BBC, BBC computers, little horrible little things that didn't do much. Uh, and I knew nothing about computers at the time, so that made it even more bizarre. Uh, what else have I done nine to five? I ran a disability arts forum in the West Midlands. That was nine to five for a few years. And then obviously the worst job of all was nine to five working for Leonard Cheshire. Tell me about that particular that little particular gem, Paul, <laughs> since we shared that experience. That's how we met, listeners. I was the National Advocacy Officer for the Disabled People's Forum, which was set up to empower disabled people within Leonard Cheshire. Now, if people aren't aware, what's Leonard Cheshire? Leonard Cheshire are the largest institutionalising charity in the UK of disabled people. They run homes and the like. And also abroad, don't they, internationally? They internationally, run a fair, yes. Plus a they run a lot of home help services now. OK. And other disability things. And uh, one of the things that you did when you left there mm. was you set up... I don't know, are we allowed to talk? Yes. We are allowed to talk about something that you set up, which was a, a kind of an anti-Leonard Cheshire website. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> you bought, if I'm right, you bought up their uh, their domain names. I did. <laughs> their website was leonardcheshire.org or something, and I discovered that their .com and .co.uk wasn't bought, so I bought them. And I set up 
not an anti, but an alternative truthful version okay. of the realities of Leonard Cheshire as an organisation, which I believe to be uh, not very good for disabled people and still believe them to be very destructive for disabled people as a society. And it revealed things, for example, like that the most of the senior managers have private health care whilst their residents wait for years. And equally that their income is about £120 million a year, largely from state funding. So people don't need to give them any charity or contributions because they're paying for them left, right and centre out of their taxes anyway. But, I, but it's that notion of the institution, like segregated schools. I think they are a crime against disabled people. All homes are unnecessary and anti-egalitarian. So you are anti-special uh, schools, you're anti-residential um, care or institutionalised living? For valid, practical and ideological reasons. It's not just that I'm anti. Yeah. I think a lot of people who criticise, like, oh, you're just anti-this, you're anti-that. It's not. It's valid, critical social model uh, criticism of those institutions that are quite unhelpful to the, pro the progress of disabled people in contemporary society. And the social model is what? The social model are the processes of society that marginalise, discriminate and negate the idea of disabled people as equal with everybody else. So physically, it's steps in buildings is a disabling process. Attitudes are a disabling process, as indeed our Leonard Cheshire homes are a disabling process. What you did with the uh, the website, the Leonard Cheshire, the mm -hmm. Alternative Truth mm -hmm. website, let's say, mm -hmm. um, was then followed, I believe, by a, a similar thing done by Dr. Lawrence Clark for the spastic society scope yes he did a he did a scope one he did uh, a similar thing i'm not sure it lasted that long but no i'm not sure it was uh, either <laughs> but what i was i was wondering is uh would you... someone did an anti-me one and i think someone did an anti-mcmillan nurses one okay but th but they were often about the notion of the money mm -hmm. and the idea that charity because for example one of the things in say the leonard cheshire things people thought they were in the homes out of the charity of donations when in fact they weren't they were there because they were being paid by social, by services, social services to provide a service and i thought it was a crime that the, even the people in the homes didn't know that mm. so Let, it was about creating a transparency yes would you um say that you're an activist uh doing that kind of thing i think yes i think i chose an activism that i thought was witty and intelligent. So, for example, that anti Leonard Cheshire site had a lot of jokes on it, mm -hmm. a lot of funny things, a lot of humorous things. It, 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 it was not meant to be wholly serious. And, but equally, I used it as a learning process. And I think I've used most of the things I've done as a learning process for me and hopefully for others. And, and bizarrely, I'm always stunned when people tell me I've been an inspiration to them. I find that the most incredibly bizarre thing entirely. Something else I, I would uh, maybe put under the category of a piece of art and activism was uh, when and I was reminded of this when I was looking on your website is the chair mm -hmm. a piece of work called the chair and I wondered if you could explain what that was about. The is. chair is again with M Whitehurst uh, is a memorial sculpture for the victims of the Holocaust against disabled people in Nazi Germany. 
you know, there's the poem where at first they came for the trade unionists, then they came for the Jew, and you know, well, that's all wrong. First they came for the disabled, and the point is they're still coming for the disabled. And we were the, the people that uh, they first gassed, that they organised the gas chambers on the basis of what they'd learned from doing it to disabled people. And there isn't a single memorial to the victims of the Holocaust to disabled people anywhere, and it's to try and raise funds to build this sculpture, which is a wheelchair, which is the symbol of disability, be that right or wrong as a symbol it mm. is and and it's an attempt to try and get a recognition of that as a reality as well as a recognition for the people who died because i think in a lot of the kind of talk about the holocaust uh, no one is allowed or literally not allowed because i remember i did something about the holocaust and disabled people and i particularly wasn't allowed to say certain things for example the, the most of the kind of eugenic ideas that were implied were British and the Germans just took them off British people. I wasn't allowed to say that in this major forum and I was had to give my speech in beforehand and it was, you're not allowed to say this, this, this and this. Is that what prompted you to create the chair or the idea of the chair with that? Yes, yes, I think so. Because I think we're, it's a hidden history that enables and legitimates the continuing Holocaust against disabled people through abortion. And that's not about whether you believe in abortion or not. It's about the fact that in disability, it's not an issue. You know, I think 90, 95% of certain impairments are aborted, you know, without question, right up to the day before it's due. There's no time limit, for example. Now, if, if you're for that, fair enough. But a lot of people who are for or against abortion think disability is a different issue. Mm -hmm. So it's all those kind of things coming in. But people forget and don't explore them or understand them because they don't have any idea of the past history of disabled people. Do you think, from things that you've said, I mean, we're coming to the final 10 minutes, 12 mm -hmm. minutes um, of talking to you, certain other serious stuff again. Mm -hmm. um, you said at one point that you think disabilities had its day as anything positive. You think we're <coughs> entering a long, dark period now. Good memory. Um, in terms of disability. Having just touched on abortion as an issue... Mm -hmm. Um, is that part of it? Are we being... Why do you feel that this is such a, a negative time and a dark period for disability and disabled people? I think, again, it's linked to that, that notion of normality. And I think we are in a society at the moment that is obsessed with the notion of the ideal and the normal, be that through celebrity culture, through trying to access wealth, or even talent shows or whatever. There's this great belief now like never before in the ideal and the normal, especially in body and looks. And so you're in a society now where the most talentless of people can get very rich very quick through how they look, and that's about normality and ideals. And along with that, we're in a society now that treats disabled people in a very contradictory way. And that's what's so interesting about the exploration of culture on the one hand, we have a society where legally we have more equality than ever. But on the other hand, through terminations, through, you know, euthanasia, be it legal or illegal, it's illegal in Holland, for example, against disabled people. It's illegal here, but lots of doctors do it. You've got a mass extermination of disabled people that's, that's nearly matching the scale of what the Nazis did to us. That's a massive contradiction. And so a lot of disabled people... Equality isn't an issue because they're never going to exist. You know, certain impairments, my impairments, spina bifida, Down syndrome, 
90, 95%, and that's just growing. And equally, the number of impairments coming into that kind of category of mass extermination is growing day by day through genetics and the like. So if we manage to get born or survive at all, <coughs> then we have more rights. Uh, if we're not put in a home, yes. <laughs> so even that doesn't apply to everybody. Absolutely. As as with most equality law, it tends to apply to those that don't need it, which are usually the white educated middle classes. That's who the law generally applies to in relation to disability. The people we know who have the most services, the most money through benefits, through support, tend to be the white educated middle classes, such as you and I. So we, um, <laughs> indeed, I think we're aware of, of absolutely how lucky absolutely we are. And as you said earlier, it is about luck in many senses. There's, there's very little difference between us and the person in the residential home. Absolutely. You know. yeah. um, so you do, do you think that we're, uh, are we an endangered species, disabled people? Well, it's, it's interesting, actually, because, again, the, the legendary Anne Whitehurst has often spoken about biodiversity should include disabled people. And that, that move to save the variety of species uh, should include us now, you know, because there are certain impairments that within a few years will not exist, not because they're not being conceived, but because they're being wiped out through human practice. And that's what biodiversity is about, is about preserving species who, who are threatened by human practices and processes, and that includes disabled people. So that's one way of preserving is if you, you know, I'm thinking, well, what do we do then? What what do we do as disabled people or as allies or people listening to this? I'm thinking, well, you know, what's going to happen to disabled people in the future? Do we campaign? What's the future going to be like, do you think, for us? I think we do campaign, but it's about campaigning for the truth. And again, come back to the Leonard Cheshire thing, it's not about whether you think they're right or wrong. If you choose to think they're right, that's fair enough. That's what you're entitled to. But make that decision based on what is the reality of that situation. You know, that they're not charities. They're, they're, they're the reserve of highly professional, normal, white, middle-class people on very good salaries. The disabled people get very little out of it. But that's, and that's what people should make their decisions on. They may then choose... To say, right, well, let's wipe out all disabled people. Isn't the problem, though, Paul, that people think they do have the truth and that they are being told the truth? Uh, possibly. I think the alternative is that they don't particularly want to know the truth because it makes things messy and complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a combination of those things. But equally, I think people are open to the truth if they're given it. You know, when I did the anti-Leonard Cheshire thing, I got emails from the most incredible range of people who who said you know this is amazing i didn't realize that and i think people are open if you point out that the chief executive on x y or z charity you know is on a hundred grand a year and has private medical health the person in the resident residential home gets 15 quid a week and has to wait two years for his operation where's your where is your contribution going it's not going to the disabled person it's going to the chief executive salary and that disabled person shouldn't be in that institution anyway. They should be living in society. And it would probably be cheaper. So what's the future for Paul Dark? What's the future for Paul Dark? In the short-term future, there's the, uh, <laughs> there's, the, there's the Wolverhampton Disability Arts Festival at www.outside-centre.info, which is theatre, 
film, uh, comedy, hopefully. Uh, hopefully a couple of things at the art gallery. All around Wolverhampton from about the middle of October to March, culminating in a film festival at the Lighthouse. Obviously one of the highlights is a play that I'm co-writing with your good self. Oh, really? And that's on November the 22nd at the Arena Theatre. The Arena. And so that'll take us up to March. That's supposed to, I'm supposed to be making a film as well. That's why we're filming this interview, for example. And so that's going to take up the, the pretty much the short term. Longer term, applications to the Heritage Lottery for a, a kind of oral history of disabled people in Wolverhampton, that kind of thing. I'd like to put in a bigger grant to the Arts Council for, a, for an arts project that I want to do about family genealogy and the recording of that through imagery and the types of imagery that's about. It's not disability at all, uh, which is why I quite like that idea, actually. It, it'd be nice not to do disability. Obviously, I've got to fit in the great novel. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's about it, really. So not much. Not much Not all. much to fill in there. <laughs> I'm really only 28 and this grey beard is just <laughs> making me look 45. <laughs> so really you do, you know, you said earlier in the interview, you said, oh, you know, I'm not sure that I've got things to do before I die or whatever. But it sounds like you have a fair well, number a of bit things. Of, yes and no, a bit of those things are making a living. You mm-hmm. know, I've got to pay, pay the, uh, what have I got to pay? I haven't got to pay much actually, but... <laughs> <laughs> I've got to pay for my next holiday. Uh, and so a bit of that is that. Equally, it's doing things I want to do. I think I, I, I want to write the play uh, with you. I think that would be an interesting thing. And it's going to be about what? Uh, what's people, it going to be? About? Give people an enticement. Well, you're a, you're a stand-up comedian. Or a sit-down comedian, as Sherry Blair likes to say, and <laughs> Lawrence Clark likes to tell us over and over again. I think Lawrence Clark is brilliant. He's a master comedian, so... Not as good as Liz, but, you know... Uh, <laughs> What was the sign? <laughs> What's the play about? That we're What's writing? the play about? Well, you're a stand-up comedian, and it's about a disabled woman who does stand-up comedy. Well, this is my version. You may write a different play. Yeah, yes. Who uh, explores what some people consider to be offensive, and through her comedy, and people will say, you know, the people she meets after it, and it'd be a, probably a monologue amongst yourself, exploring what they think and feel about, you know, what's offensive, what one can say about disabled, what one can't. Which we talked about a little bit last we did a week bit when I was. But I was hopefully the play will be funnier than what we said earlier. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> funny. You know what I was thinking? I think that in, in, in working on the play, this is definitely true. Comedy's funny. Hopefully, talking about comedy often isn't. So. Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna bridge that gap. We're gonna change that. We are definitely gonna bridge that Absolutely gap. Absolutely gonna but change. But equally, that. it doesn't need to be funny. I think some of this play will be very funny, but some of it won't. It'll be touching. It'll be heart rendering. It'll be uh, dramatic. It'll be tragic. It'll be all of those things. It doesn't. There's the idea that everything's got to be funny. It doesn't have to be funny because some things are beyond humour. I asked you um, earlier about your epitaph. This isn't quite the same thing, and I'm wondering if we've heard the answer already. But what would you like your legacy to be? My legacy. Oh, that's a difficult one because I was thinking about that the other day, as you do while you wake up in the middle of the night, frightened of dying. Uh, I don't know. I, I Walker. I'd like him to be happy and have a good life. I don't mind if no one remembers me at all, and as long as he's happy and has a good life. Because, as another song on that list that we're not playing, uh, you know, it says, you know, in a hundred years, everybody we know and love will be dead. So, it don't matter, does it? 
Which song was that? It's one of it's the Flaming Lips. I can't remember which one it's called. Oh, we should, I liked that song. You I was almost going to make it. <laughs> that was, but as a love song, actually, I was going to have that. Absolutely, you know, and, it, point. and that's both reassuring because equally, those who are remembered and have a legacy, it's not them. It's not them at all. It's a distortion of who they were or what they are, or even of what they thought. Even Shakespeare, you know, it's not about him as an individual at all, you know, and he, he's nothing in it really. And everything that he is is constructed by people. And so in relation to me as a legacy, uh, no one will remember me as no one will remember anybody in 100 years' time. And was that a painful realisation, Paul? I don't know. You could see it as an optimistic thing as well because, you know, you don't have to bother about those kind of ego things about wanting to leave a legacy, you know. It's a nice idea, but the reality is no one does. Isn't this radio show enough of a legacy? (laughs) (laughs) Three till five every Wednesday on WCRFM.com. That's not a legacy. That's a legend. (laughs) A legend in my own lifetime. But now I'm part of it. Now I know the truth. (laughs) Well, this, I hope... You have enjoyed the process of being interviewed. I have. Yeah? I have. Was there a question that you wished I'd have asked you? That you uh, were expecting to be asked? Uh, no, not knowing that there are certain things that we can't broadcast because of the nature of the content. <laughs> oh, you're incontinence yet again, Paul. I don't know. Uh, so, no, not really. I, th- I think you've done a fantastic job. Thank you. And I think your experience on the ouch thing has paid off. I'm, I'm, I'm humbled. As indeed. I've enjoyed it. I think maybe give it a few more months and somebody, may or maybe myself, will be back to interview for a few more things. I think that would be excellent. I look forward to you coming back and interviewing. I think we should have you back to interview someone else. That would be fun. Why not? You, We could pick someone that we both know, for example, that you want to ask lots of questions to. Well, I'm around for the uh, Outside Centre Festival. Absolutely. Which everybody should definitely be a part of and come and see. Certainly I'll play. <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm biased or anything like that. 